Good evening. I hope you've had a wonderful day today. Welcome to BVJ's Bedtime Stories. My name is Big Voice Jay, and this is a show where we get you ready for a great night's sleep with some old familiar stories that you haven't heard in a while. Links to every story can be found in the show notes at our website, bedtimewithbvj.com. Tonight we continue our story, Modern Cinderella by Louisa May Alcott. Whereupon Nan persuaded herself that her strong inclination to sit down was owing to want of exercise and the heaviness of her eyelids a freak of imagination. So, speedily smoothing her ruffled plumage, she ran down to tell her father of the new arrangement. Go, my dear, by all I means. I shall be writing, and you shall be lonely if you stay. But I must see my girls, for I caught glimpses of certain surprising phantoms flitting by the door. Nan led the way, and the two pyramids revolved before him with the rapidity of lay figures, much to the good man's edification, for with his fatherly pleasure there was mingled much wild wonderment at the amplitude of array. Yes, I see my geese are really swans, though there is such a cloud between us that I feel a long way off. Hardly know them. But this little daughter is always available, always my cricket on the hearth. As he spoke, her father drew Nan closer, kissed her tranquil face, and smiled content. <sighs> if I ever see pictures, I see them now, and I declare to goodness it's his interest in his play act in every bit. Miss Di with all them bows in her head, looking like the Queen of Shelby when she went to visiting. It's his name. And if Laura ain't as sweet as a Lady Barster figure, I should like to know what is. In her enthusiasm, Sally gambled about the girls, flourishing her milk pan like a modern Miriam, about to sound her timbrel for excess of joy. Laughing merrily, the two Montblancs bestowed themselves in the family ark. Nan hopped up beside Patrick, and Sullen, roused from his lawful slumbers, morosely trundled them away. But looking backward with a last good night, Nan saw her father still standing at the door with smiling countenance, and the moonlight falling like a benediction on his silver hair. Betsy shall go up the hill with you, my dear, and here's a basket of eggs for you. Give him my love, and be sure you let me know the next time he is poorly, Mrs. Lord said, when her guest rose to depart after an hour of pleasant chat. But Nan never got the gift, for to her great dismay, her hostess dropped the basket with a crash and flew across the room to meet a tall shape pausing in the shadow of the door. There was no need to ask who the newcomer was, for even in his mother's arms, John looked over her shoulder with an eager nod to Nan, who stood among the ruins with never a sign of weariness in her face, nor the memory of a care at her heart, for they all went out when John came in. Now, tell us how and why and when you came. Take off your coat, my dear, and here are the old slippers. Why didn't you let us know you were coming so soon? How have you been? And what makes you so late tonight? Uh, Betsy, you needn't put on your bonnet. And oh, my dear boy, have you been to supper yet? Mrs. Lord was a quiet soul, and her flood of questions was purred softly in her son's ear. For being a woman, she must talk, and being a mother, must pet the one delight of her life, and make a little festival when the lord of the manor came home. 
A whole drove of fatted calves were metaphorically killed and a banquet appeared with speed. John was not one of those romantic heroes who can go through three volumes of hair-breadth escapes without the faintest hint of that blessed institution dinner. Therefore, like Lady Leatherbridge, he partook copiously of everything, while the two women beamed over each mouthful with an interest that enhanced its flavor and urged upon him cold meat and cheese, pickles and pie, as if dyspepsia and nightmare were among the lost arts. Then he opened his budget of news and fed them. I was coming next month, according to custom, but Philip fell upon and so tempted me that I was driven to sacrifice myself to the cause of friendship, and up we came tonight. He would not let me come here till we had seen your father and Anne, for the poor lad was pining for Laura, and hoped his good behavior for the past year would satisfy his judge and secure his recall. We had a fine talk with your father, and upon my life, Philip seemed to have received the gift of tongues, for he made most eloquent a plea, which I have stored away for future use, I assure you. The dear old gentleman was very kind, told Phil he was satisfied with the success of his probation, that he should see Laura when he liked, and, if all went well, should receive his reward in the spring. It must be a delightful sensation to know you have made a fellow creature as happy as those words made Phil tonight. John paused and looked musingly at the matron in the teapot, as if he saw a wondrous future in its shine. Nan twinkled off the drops that rose at the thought of Laura's joy and said, with grateful warmth, "'You say nothing of your own share in the making of that happiness, John?' But we know it, for Philip has told Laura in his letters all that you have been to him, and I am sure there were other eloquence besides his own before Father granted all you say yes. Oh, John, I thank you very much for this. Mrs. Lord beamed a whole midsummer of delight upon her son, as she saw the pleasure these words gave him, though he answered simply, I only try to be a brother to him, Nan, for he has been most kind to me. Yes, I said my little say tonight and gave my testimony in behalf of the prisoner at the bar. A most merciful judge pronounced his sentence, and he rushed straight to Mrs. Lee's to tell Laura the blissful news. Just imagine the scene when he appears, and how Di will open her wicked eyes and enjoy the spectacle of the disheveled lover. The bride-elect's tears, the stir, and the romance of the thing. She'll cry over it tonight and caricature it tomorrow and John led the laugh at the picture he had conjured up to turn the thoughts of Di's dangerous sister from himself. At ten, Nan retired into the depths of her old bonnet with a far different face from the one she brought out of it, and John, resuming his hat, mounted guard. Don't stay late, remember, John? And in Mrs. Lord's voice, there was a warning tone that her son interpreted aright. I'll not forget, Mother. And he kept his word. For though Philip's happiness floated temptingly before him, and the little figure at his side had never seemed so dear, he ignored the bland words, the tender night, and set a seal upon his lips. Thinking manfully within himself, I see many signs of promise in her happy face, but I will wait and hope a little longer for her sake. Where is Father Sally? asked Nan, as that functionary appeared, blinking owlishly but utterly repudiating the idea of sleep. He went down the garden, miss, when the gentleman cleared, being a little flustered by the goings-on. Shall I fetch him in, asked Sally, as irreverently as if her master were a bag of meal. No, we will go ourselves. 
and slowly the two paced down the leaf-strewn walk. Fields of yellow grain were waving on the hillside, and sear corn blades rustled in the wind. From the orchard came the scent of ripening fruit, and all the garden plots lay ready to yield up their humble offerings to their master's hand. But in the silence of the night a greater reaper had passed, gathering in the harvest of a righteous life, and leaving only tender memories for the gleaners who had come so late. The old man sat in the shadow of the tree, his own hands planted. Its fruit boughs shone ruddily, and its leaves still whispered the low lullaby that hushed him to his rest. How fast he sleeps! Poor father! I should have come before and made it pleasant for him. As she spoke, Nan lifted up the head, bent down upon his breast, and kissed his pallid cheek. Oh, this is sleep. Yes, dear, the happiest he will ever know. For a moment the shadows flickered over three white faces, and the silence deepened solemnly. Then John reverently bore the pale shape in, and Nan dropped down beside it, saying with a rain of grateful tears, He kissed me when I went, and said a last good night. For an hour, steps went to and fro about her, many voices whispered near her, and skillful hands touched the beloved clay she held so fast. But one by one the busy feet passed out, one by one the voices died away, and human skill proved vain. Then Mrs. Lord drew the orphan to the shelter of her arms, soothing her with the mute solace of that motherly embrace. Nan, Nan, here's Philip. Come and see. The happy call re-echoed through the house, and Nan sprang up as if her time for grief were past. I must tell them. Oh, my poor girls, how will they bear it? They have known so little sorrow. For there was no need for her to speak. Other lips had spared her the hard task, for she stirred to meet them. A sharp cry rent the air, steps rang upon the stairs, and two wild-eyed creatures came into the hush of that familiar room, for the first time meeting with no welcome from their father's voice. With one impulse, Di and Laura fled to Nan, and the sisters clung together in a silent embrace, more eloquent than words. John took his mother by the hand and led her from the room, closing the door upon the sacredness of grief. Yes, we are poorer than we thought, but when everything is settled, we shall get on very well. Can let a part of this great house and live quietly together until spring, then Laura will be married and can go on her travels with them, as Philip wishes her to do. We shall be cared for, so never fear for us, John. Nan said this, as her friend parted from her a week later, after the saddest holiday he had ever known. "'And what becomes of you, Nan?' he asked, watching the patient eyes that smiled when others would have wept. "'I shall stay in the dear old house, for no other place seemed like home to me. I shall find some little child to love and care for, and be quite happy till the girls come back and want me.' John nodded wisely as he listened and went away prophesying within himself, she shall find something more than a child to love, and God willing, shall be very happy till the girls come home and cannot have. Nan's plan was carried into effect. Slowly the divided waters closed again, and the three fell back into their old life, but the touch of sorrow drew them closer, and, though invisible, a beloved presence still moved among them. A familiar voice still spoke to them in the silence of their softened hearts. 
Thus the soil was made ready, and in the depth of winter the good seed was sown, was watered with many tears, and soon sprang up green for the promise of a harvest for their after years. Di and Laura consoled themselves with their favorite employments, unconscious that Nan was growing paler, thinner, and more silent as the weeks went by, till one day she dropped quietly before them. And it suddenly became manifest that she was utterly worn out with many cares, and the secret suffering of a tender heart, bereft of the paternal love which had been its strength and stay. I'm only tired, dear girls. Don't be troubled, for I shall be up tomorrow, she said cheerily, as she looked into the anxious faces bending over her. But the weariness was of many months' growth, and it was weeks before that tomorrow. Laura installed herself as nurse, and her devotion was repaid fourfold, for sitting at her sister's bedside, she learned a finer art that she had left. Her eye grew clear to see the beauty of a self-dying life, and in the depths of Nan's meek nature, she found the strong, sweet virtues that made her what she was. Then remembering that these womanly attributes were a bride's best dowry, Laura gave herself to their attainment that she might become to another household the blessing Nan had been to her own, and turning from the worship of the goddess Beauty, she gave her hand to that humbler and more human teacher, Duty, learning her lessons from a willing heart for Philip's sake. Di corked her inkstand, locked her bookcase, and went at housework as if it were a five-barred gate. Of course she missed the leap, but scrambled bravely through, and appeared much sobered by the exercise. Sally had departed to sit under a vine and fig tree of her own, so Di had undisputed away. But if dishpans and dusters had tongues, direful would have been the history of that crusade against frost and fire, indolence and inexperience. But they were dumb and Di scorned to complain, though her struggles were pathetic to behold, and her sisters went through a series of messes equal to a course of Prince Ben Redden's peppery tarts. Reality turned romance out of doors, for, unlike her favorite heroines in Satin and Tears, or Helmet and Shield, Di met her fate in a big checked apron and dust cap. Wonderful to see, yet she wielded her broom as stoutly as Maul Pitcher shouldered her gun and marched to her daily martyrdom in the kitchen with as heroic a heart as the maid of Orleans took to her stake. Mind won the victory over matter in the end, and Di was better all her days for the tribulations and the triumphs of that time, for she drowned her idle fancies in her washtub, made burnt offerings of selfishness and pride, and learned the worth of self-denial, as she sang with happy voice among the pots and kettles of her conquered realm. Nan thought of John, and in the stillness of her sleepless nights, prayed heaven to keep him safe and make her worthy to receive and strong enough to bear the blessedness or pain of love. Snow fell without, and keen winds howled led among the leafless elms. But herbs of grace were blooming beautifully in the sunshine of sincere endeavor, and this dreariest season proved the most fruitful of the year, for love taught Laura labor chastened die, and patience fitted Nan for the blessing of her life. Nature, that stillest yet most diligent of housewives, began at last that spring cleaning, which she makes so pleasant that none find the heart to grumble as they do when other matrons set their premises adust. Her handmaids, wind and rain and sun, 
swept, washed, garnished busily. Green carpets were unrolled, apple boughs were hung with draperies of bloom, and dandelions, pet nurslings of the year, came out to play upon the sward. From the south returned that opera truth, whose manager is never in despair, whose tenor never sulks, whose prima donna never fails. And in the orchard bona fide matinees were held, to which buttercups and clovers crowded in their pretty spring hats, and verdant young blades twinkled their dewy lorgnettes as they bowed and made way for the floral bells. May was bidding June good morrow, and the roses were just dreaming that it was almost time to wake. When John came again into the quiet room, which now seemed the Eden that contained his Eve. Of course, there was a jubilee, but something seemed to have befallen the whole group, for never had they appeared in such odd frames of mind. John was restless and wore an excited look, most unlike his usual serenity of aspect. Nan the cheerful had fallen into a well of silence and was not to be extracted by any hydraulic power, though she smiled like the June sky over her head. Di's peculiarities were out in full force, and she looked as if she would go off like a torpedo at a touch. But through all her moods, there was a half-triumphant, half-remorseful expression in the glance she fixed on John. And Laura, once so silent, now sang like a blackbird, as she flitted to and fro, but her fitful song was always, Philip, my king. John felt that there had come a change upon the three, and silently divined whose unconscious influence had wrought the miracle. The embargo was off his tongue, and he was in a fever to ask that question, which brings a flutter to the stoutest heart. But though the man had come, the hour not. So by way of steadying his nerves, he paced the room, pausing often to take notes of his companions, and each pause seemed to increase his wonder and content. He looked at Nan. She was in her usual place, the rigid little chair she loved, because it once was large enough to hold a curly-headed playmate, and herself. The old workbasket was at her side, and the battered thimble busily at work, but her lips wore a smile they had never worn before. The color of the unblown roses touched her cheek, and her downcast eyes were full of light. He looked at Di. The inevitable book was on her knee, but its leaves were uncut. The strong-minded knob of hair still asserted its supremacy aloft upon her head, and the triangular jacket still adorned her shoulders in defiance of all fashions, past, present, or to come. But the expression of her brown countenance had grown soft. Her tongue had found a curb, and in her hand lay a card with Potts, Kettle, and Co. inscribed thereon, which she regarded was never a scornful word for the... He looked at Laura. She was before her easel as of old, but the pale nun had given place to a blooming girl who sang at her work, which was no prim palace, but a piety turning her human face to meet the sun. John, what are you thinking of? He stirred, as if Di's voice had disturbed his fancy at some pleasant pastime, but answered with his usual sincerity. I was thinking of a certain dear old fairy tale called Cinderella. Oh, said, and her O was a most impressive monosyllable. I see the meaning of your smile now, and though the application of the story is not very complimentary to all parties concerned, it is very just and very true. She paused a moment, then went on with soft voice and earnest mien. You think I'm a blind and selfish creature? So I am. But not so blind and selfish as I have been. 
before many tears have cleared. Much sincere regret has made me humbler than I was. I found a better book than any father's library can give me, and I read it with a love and admiration that grew stronger as I turned the leaves. Henceforth, I take it for my guide and gospel, and, looking back upon the selfish and neglectful past, can only say, Heaven bless your dear heart, Nan. Laura echoed Di's last words, for with eyes as full of tenderness, she looked down upon the sister she had lately learned to know, saying warmly, Yes, heaven bless your dear heart, Nan. I never can forget all you have been to me, and when I am far away with Philip, we'll continue our story in our next episode. I want to tell you that we are always looking out for new stories to read. You can email them to me, bigvoicejay at gmail.com. Remember to leave a review on iTunes. It helps to spread the word that this little show is putting people to sleep. Thank you so much for listening. Good night. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this broker. <laughs>